Okay, uh, week number two. Let me move through here and get us caught up um, where we were. Okay. So week number two in this uh, very short series on overcoming sinful fear and anxiety, both of which uh, are common to man's struggles, things that every Christian will deal with, but as we said already, challenges that any Christian can overcome no matter, no matter the object of their anxiety or fear and no matter the length of time that a believer has battled these particular sins or even failed in that endeavor. So we want to jump back in here. Last time we, we simply introduced uh, the topic, uh, bringing up various kinds of fears or concerns that uh, sometimes morph into anxieties. Uh, we also uh, not only agreed how common these issues are, not just for those who are outside of Christ, but for those in Christ, but we also saw how often the Bible addresses fear and worry. So over and over again, we find these imperatives in the Scriptures. Do not be afraid. Uh, fear not. Uh, be, be strong and courageous. Uh, be anxious for nothing. And we said that though, though these things are commands, they come to us in the most compassionate and tender way from our gracious God, a heavenly Father who takes delight in blessing His children, and from a merciful Savior who sympathizes with our weaknesses, having been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. Uh, then, I, then I made a few comments to sort of get us going in the right Direction. The first one was the idea of how emotions in general serve a useful purpose uh, in our lives. Uh, in fact, the, the very word itself, emotion, means, as we said, to move out or to stir up, which points to how emotions are intended to function. Uh, emotions of all sorts, whether it's uh, anger or anxiety, fear, sorrow, pleasure, delight, joy, uh, jealousy, disgust, surprise, wonder. Uh, which there's, a, there's, a, there's a whole range of, of emotions, yet all of them are meant to give us a push in a nonspecific direction. So they sort of mo- move us out and motivate us. Of course, we've got to think about where we're going, right? So the specifics of that, we've got to, to sort of um, uh, think about that in this process, and we'll get to to how to do that. But in general, emotions are, are there to prepare us to act, to motivate us to some end. And in that sense, we said they are a preparatory. And they're also a, a response to how, we, to how we interpret life. So they're sort of, they're, they're, it's, it's, it's both. It's th- things are happening and we're responding to things emotionally. But then we said m- emotions uh, typically precede the decisions and choices we make and actions. So I had a brief conversation before uh, class this morning, and, and somebody was saying, well, well what about this situation, or, or, or what about that? And so there's, I'm not saying there, we could not nuance this a little bit. Uh, I'm not trying to, I say this time and time again at our counseling conference, that we're, we're not trying to just boil things down into such this sort of linear way, sort of simple thing that, oh, here's how you take care of of worry. You do this, this, and this, and then worry goes away. We don't want to reduce these things down to a formula, and yet you can see these patterns in Scripture. I think there's examples of how this works in Scripture, 
I also see examples every week of how this plays out in other people's lives. I see how it plays out in my own life. And so we're just trying to give you a sort of a, if you might call it just a general template of how this works. Could we find maybe one exception to that? Well, sure, we might find an exception to that. Uh, but this is, is generally how, how this process uh, plays out and, and, so, and sort of where emotions fit into uh, the, the thinking and the choices and all of that that's going on in our, in our hearts and lives. So clearly we're emotional beings, right? Uh, we're, we, are, we, are, we are also interpreting beings, which means that we're always learning. We're always trying to make sense out of things in life. We're always sort of reasoning things out, uh, trying to figure out why things happen the way that they do. It's what sets us apart really from other things that God created. We have this capacity to, to do that, to sort of uh, reason and to think about things in our hearts. In fact, I've told people it's, it's interesting. We're the only thing that God cr- uh, created uh, that has this ability to sort of think about what we're thinking about. So you're not only able to think, you're actually able to think about what you were just thinking or are thinking. And so that sort of ability to analyze uh, and to examine your own life and heart is, is really amazing. And we need to, we need to know that and, and take advantage uh, of that in our Christian lives. So this kind of brought us to our next point, which was this, that there is a process in which we experience emotion. Um, and this is the process, and I've got it up here again for you. It's first, first there's stimuli, things happen, situations with their temptations, blessings, and difficulties. Next, there's thinking. So we're thinking about what happened or what is happening at the present. Uh, Thinking about ourselves, we're thinking about God, or maybe we're not thinking uh, about God. And actually, I think in the case of fear, uh, God is often not even mentioned when, when we talk to people because they are consumed with themselves. And so when you start talking about people that are gripped with fear, sometimes they'll go on for a half an hour to an hour talking about the situation and the people involved and the, and the details and the fears and all the anxieties. No God, right? We're talking about Christians, right? So Christians get, can get into this habit of thinking about all that stuff and somehow it's like, where is God in all of this? And that's a question we have to pose to them sometimes. Just say, so where is God in the midst of, of these things? And so they've just gotten into that habit of not factoring that in. And again, that selfishness and pride and all that stuff plays in to that. Uh, so the heart is where this is going on. The heart is where we do our thinking, our, our, you might say where we talk to ourselves, sort of in our minds or hearts, sorting these things out, interpreting what is going on. And, and all of these thoughts and perspectives and convictions and beliefs affect how you and I emote. That is to say, our emotions flow out of our thinking. So we have thinking, we have emotion, and then we act. In other words, our actions and choices and behavior are never uh, random because they stem from thoughts and emotions that have already been present in the heart of man. So people will even describe sometimes that those that have had what we, you might call a, a panic attack, um, it, it, they describe it as if it, this, it was something that was hiding in the bushes and that they were just going along and then all of a sudden this panic jumped out at them, right? Like it, it came out of nowhere. The reality is that that fear and that anxiety had been stirring in their hearts for a very, in most cases, a very long time. 
And so they're just not paying attention to it. It's actually going on at that heart level. It's going on at that thinking level. Um, they're having anxious thoughts, fearful thoughts. They're, they're emoting fear and worry, but they're really not noticing that that dynamic is going on. And so they, at some point, hit this threshold. In many cases, it's driven physiologically, right, because they've been dealing with the stress and the pressure, and that beam is, is beginning to cave. And then sometimes even physiologically, our bodies just say, I've had enough, Right, it's like all of this anxiety and pressure in the heart is affecting a person physically, and then when those things get to going and feeding off of one another, you'll have these things such as panic attacks that, that come up. So we 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 act, and then if we continue, we said to do these things in the same direction, we end up with a certain kind of character, and then habits are formed over over time. Uh, and we looked at some examples of this in. In scripture. Now, I want to take you to one, and I briefly mentioned this uh, last week, but I want to look at this one a little more carefully. I want you to turn to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. And uh, hopefully you're somewhat familiar with this, uh, this minor prophet, but just sort of taking the book of Jonah and, and, and then thinking through this particular process that we've just laid out, and, and, and this is actually a, a great book to, to look at when you're considering e- emotion because Jonah both emoted not in a good way, but there was actually a, uh, an absence, you might say, of, of emotion, sort of a, like he probably should have been more grieved or more concerned about things than he actually was, and so something happens. We have this stimuli. Something happened. What happened? God called Jonah to leave what I believe was a comfortable ministry and to go and to preach to those in Nineveh, that great city of the Assyrian Empire. Now, why do I say that it was a comfortable ministry? Well, if you go back and you study the life of Jonah, what you'll find is that Jonah prophesied that the actual prophecies that Jonah gave and the time in which Jonah prophesied was actually a time when God was promising to restore various uh, uh, territories back to, to Israel. And so even though Jonah was, was a prophet, Jonah did not come to the people like most of the other prophets that we're aware of. You know, coming in with that, that like we just finished up our, um, uh, our, our series in Hosea a while back, and, and not how some of these prophets came, you know, uh, indicting the people and laying out the evidence and, and saying you're, you're, you're guilty before God for, for unfaithfulness and you don't have a knowledge of God and you don't have any loyalty in your life to God and then this is what's going to happen. Jonah didn't have a, exactly that kind of ministry and so he was still a prophet in the sense that he was delivering God's message to the people. It just wasn't specifically that message of judgments coming and this message of, of condemnation. And so when, when God tells Jonah, this is, this is what I want you to do, I think there is this sort of fleshly component that kicks in in Jonah's life, like, well, actually, I'm enjoying the ministry that you've given to me. And, 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 and the people, and they love what I have to say, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm giving them the promises of certain things, not the promises of judgment, but promises of God's blessing. And so, so it was a, a challenge for him to, if you will, to give that up and to go do what God was calling him to do there. But you'll notice in chapter 1, verse 1, 
This is how the book starts out. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So we have a situation, right? God is calling Jonah to to go and to preach. And Jonah gave that some thought, right? He gives that that thought, uh, turns some things over. He, he, He did some interpreting, right? And, and he then emoted, right? Now, the text here doesn't tell us what that emotional response was, but what are some possibilities? Okay, so let's just say, let's assume that this process takes place, okay? We have a stimuli, we have a situation, we have Jonah thinking about some things in his mind, and then he emotes. What would be some of those possible emotions? And I've jotted a few of those down. He he could have been just, we might call, down uh, because he was enjoying what, what we could say is maybe easy ministry and didn't want to lose that. So he's, he may have been clinging to this thing that God had him doing at the time. And just the thought of having to give that up and go do something else would be that you would have that emotion of loss, right? Like, I had this, I'm enjoying it, and God's taking it away, okay? So it could just be an emotion of, of being down or discouraged or... or or you might even call it depression. Uh, he may have had fear. He may have been afraid because of how fierce the Assyrians were known to be. And so it, he may have had that sort of thought of, well, that's not a safe place to go. You know, So you're going to call me to leave this comfortable place and then go to a very threatening place, to a very threatening people. So perhaps fear was a part of this. Uh, Maybe he was worried that he wouldn't know what to say or how he would be received, right? We see this among God's spokesmen through through history, right? That when God would call them, they were anxious sometimes about, what do I say, right? I mean, God's just saying, you need to go and you need to proclaim, but not the entire message, right? So God's not giving them, at least that we know of, a, a lot of details. And so he may have been worrying about that. Um, uh, not only what do I say, but what's going to happen when I say it, right? Or maybe he was angry. You know, we've got all these possibilities. We don't know yet, but we do see his action or his decision in verse 3. It says, But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So we assume that the emotion was a negative one, right? Because he was doing what? He's running, right? He's not running to the call. He's not running to where God wants him to go. He's running in the opposite direction. He's running from the Lord himself. But notice what we find. Just maybe a page over in your Bible in chapter 3. Notice what we find in chapter 3. After Now this is after God has chastened the prophet for his disobedience. And pick up here in Jonah chapter 3 verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days' walk. And then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. 
and issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger. Okay, so this, this is a key term because this, this is a, a Hebrew, it's the Hebrew root, root here that for this word anger. Means, it means to become hot, to, to, to burn. Or, or to become enraged. And so he says, but we're going to do this because who knows, God may turn from these things and he'll, he may withdraw that, that, that burning anger so that we will not perish. Verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, so they turned from this, this evil, it's a, the word wicked here is a term that can be translated as wicked and can be translated as just as bad or uh, evil, or it can be translated even as dis- a disastrous thing. So when, when God saw this, that they turned from that evil or that bad or that disastrous way, then God relented concerning the calamity. Now, this is actually the same root of that word evil, right? So he turns from this evil or this disastrous thing which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Chapter 4. But it greatly displeased Jonah. All right, now this is interesting because this is the same word for this evil and this bad, okay, and this disastrous thing. It greatly displeased Jonah. Literally, it was exceedingly evil, or exceedingly bad, or exceedingly disastrous to Jonah. All right, so God says, I'm going to do this to them. They repent. God takes, you know, turns from that. Jonah sees that, and to him, that's evil, right? So he says, it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Same word as in chapter 3, verse 9, right? God was angry that boiling over, that heating up. But now Jonah is angry because God isn't angry. Right? Right? So God was, well, he, he had this promising this judgment, promising this wrath. He, he turns from that. And now Jonah, think about this. He's saying it's evil that God would not do that to them. And I'm angry because God is not. Okay? Serious heart issues going on, okay, with this guy. Then, verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this... Now, this takes us back to chapter 1, right? We don't know what was that emotional response on Jonah's part. Well, we get, a, we get a, a key here. Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this... I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. So that's, that's why Jonah fled to Tarshish the first time, right? Because he clearly understood the gracious character of God. Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life, 
from me, for death is better to me than life. All right, here we go. Yeah, right? It's like, I'm not getting what I want, okay? I'm responding now in sinful anger, and now I'm, I'm getting real, there's a lot of self-pity, right, in the mix. And so, Lord, just, just take my life, right? Death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Do you have good reason? That's a good question. That's a good, a good question to ask yourself, right? When you're angry. Do you have a good reason to be angry? If we'll stop long enough to, to actually think about it, right? I mean, we tend to, again, things happen, we emote, but we don't believe that anything preceded that emotion other than the things that happened because we don't understand this whole process of how thoughts precede emotion, okay? But, but that would be a great thing for us to do is to realize we do think things, we do have a perspective and a worldview, we are interpreting before we emote. And so if you're angry, it's a good question to ask yourself, do I have a good reason to be angry? Or if you are anxious, to ask yourself, do I have a good reason to worry? Or if we're depressed, do we have a good reason to despair? Verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it, and there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort, same Hebrew root, evil, bad situation, disastrous situation. So here we have God showing mercy to Jonah. And Jonah was extremely happy. What is your, anybody else have a different translation? He was exceedingly glad, right? <laughs> so we start to get, what's making this guy angry and what's making this guy happy? Okay? So he's angry that God's not angry. And he thinks it's bad that God didn't bring bad upon the people of Nineveh. And then now we find out when God does this personally for Jonah and brings this this plant and provides this shade so that it would relieve him from his discomfort, Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. This brought great joy and delight to Jonah. Verse 7, But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all of his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. And then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. And the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? What a warped situation, okay? Did, did Jonah have emotional problems? Think about it. Did he? His emotions were working just fine. Remember, we made this statement last week, right? His emotions are, are 
agreeing with his thoughts, right? So he had these thoughts, and that's what's creating that particular emotion. So it may be, rather than saying Jonah had emotional problems, it would be better for us to say Jonah had thinking problems, right? Jonah had an idolatrous heart. Jonah had selfish expectations, right? He thought that he deserved mercy, and he thought the Ninevites deserved wrath and judgment and no mercy. And he had a wrong view of God and God's purposes. Now, did he understand some things about God? He did understand some things about God's character, right? Because it says this in the text. He understood God to be a compassionate God, right? But certainly not in line with God's purposes and plan and 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 certainly not in line with the obvious call on his life, right? So it all had to do with the way that Jonah thought about the whole thing. So think, emote, act. Another example, this is in Genesis 6, even with the Lord... Uh, you'll remember this is before the flood, uh, Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Okay, so we have situation. We have God observing and seeing and thinking and about these things. And then he emotes, right? Now, where you are, and this is a, this is a, a, a debate about how, God, how the Scriptures def, describe God as having emotion. There are those who believe that God has emotions, right? There are those who believe that, that when the Scriptures speak about emotions, they speak about it in the same way that we might speak about uh, God having an arm, right? Or the eye of the Lord, Right? In other words, where we're, we're using, where the writers of Scripture are, we call that an, uh, an anthropomorphism, when, when, when the writers of Scripture uh, assign to God sort of a, a body, a body part, <laughs> right? So as if he's got real, like, physical eyes and he's looking around, okay? Or is that just a literary device, right? So they, they say, well, God doesn't have a body. The, scripture, the writers of Scripture are simply, they're using that figurative language to, to make a point, Right? So then the, the, the debate is really when, God, when the scriptures speak of God having emotion, are they also just trying to teach us something about the Lord in the same kind of way, but not specifically say God emotes? Uh, so it's a, and there's good and godly people on both sides of that. They call that an anthropopathism, right? So pathos is what we're just talking about, that emotional component, and then man. So they're using, assigning the emotions that we experience as, as men and women to God, in a sense, to convey some theological truth. Nevertheless, it's still in this order. God saw things. He emoted. He was sorry. He was grieved in his heart. And then the Lord said, verse 7, I will blot out man. So it's still in that same sequence of think, emote, act. Think, emote, act. And because this is the process, we can, if you think of it, we can sanctify our emotions by sanctifying our thoughts. And we can evaluate our emotions and discover what is going on in our hearts, what we think, what we believe, uh, our ruling desires, our interests, and our, our values. So we, we can, we can uh, use, again, we can use this, this understanding of emotion to trace back to what's going on in our hearts. Okay, so it can be very, very 
helpful for us as Christians because we don't always know what's in our hearts. We don't always know that something is that important to us until God does what? Takes it away, right? And we experience the loss of that. And then now we're discouraged and despondent. And, and, and God just saying, if you're despondent like that, then just stop. Stop. Think about, what, think about what you're feeling right now. The anxiety or the worry or the anger or the depression or the joy or whatever it is. What does that say about what you consider to be important? What is going on in your heart and in your thinking at that time? So again, it's very, very important, I think, for us to understand the way this, this plays out. And then the final thing we, we mentioned last time is that Christ is our model when it comes to handling our emotions. So what we notice, particularly in the gospel accounts, is that Christ, as the God-man, experienced a wide range of emotions. He marveled, he rejoiced, he was angry, he was compassionate, he was sorrowful. Uh, he lived in our world, a broken world where things can and do go wrong. He experienced the shame of the cross. He experienced what it's like when family and friends desert you. He experienced the immaturity and the man-centeredness of his own followers. He experienced the grief of seeing close friends die. And Jesus knit his heart to the griefs and the cares and the burdens of his people. So he was, we see at times in the life of Christ where Christ was moved by others' suffering. He was moved by love. He felt joy in the Holy Spirit over the ministry success of the 72. He felt pure, holy anger over the abuse of the temple sacrificial system. So Jesus had a very a, a rich, uh, a robust, full emotional life. But as we pointed out, his emotion always flowed from a pure heart. So Christ never gave in to worry or fear. Why? It's very simple. Dependence. Dependence. Right? It was, it was his complete confidence, trust, and dependence in God, specifically the sovereignty and the goodness of God. Jesus knew and lived like he believed that God is sovereign over everything, that there's nothing that surprises or unsettles God. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Christ pouring out His heart to the Father, proclaiming His commitment to and confidence in God, marching with resolve to Calvary without being afraid of men or circumstances, in part because He knew that God is sovereign. In fact, you remember what He told Pilate in John 19.11. He says, you, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. So Christ had a, a firm grasp on the sovereignty of God. He also knew that God is good. So not, not only is, is God all-powerful, but He's also good, e- even uh, being the very standard and the very uh, picture of what goodness is all about. So, I mean, it would be one thing for someone to be powerful, but to also be bad and evil, right? We, we've seen that in dictators, right? That is not comforting at all, but, it, but that actually produces fear, leads us to fear. But with God, we have a sovereign God who is good and does good, Psalm 119.68. And Christ lived by these truths. 1 Peter 2.23 says that Christ kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So, yes, Jesus experienced emotion, but his, but his emotion was always informed by the truth. 
His emotion was always purposeful, and his emotion was always regulated by the glory of God. And he always subjected his will to the will of the Father, no matter how he felt subjectively. Right? Because when we emote, uh, there's a subjective sort of, you might call it, I, I try to sort of distinguish between emotion and feelings. Because I think when people talk about feelings, they're actually talking about something that's more physiological. Right? I mean, they're like the, almost like a sensation. So to say there, there's this emotion, but then there's the way that those emotions impact us physically. Right? And it is hard to sort of sort those things out. But, but regardless of that, in the life of Christ... Regardless of those subjective things, he always subjected himself to God's will. And as I said, even in the garden, he was troubled, he was sorrowful, and he was distressed. But I love how, I love how Spurgeon spoke of this, uh, of Jesus' Jesus's drinking from the cup of God's holy wrath. Because I'm just saying, if you want to talk about the pressure, right? We're talking about that beam earlier, okay? you don't get a, a more pressure-packed moment, right, than, than what's going on here in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and leading into those hours uh, up to the, the crucifixion and crucifixion itself. But this is how Spurgeon describes this. He says, The whole of the tremendous debt was put upon his shoulders. The whole weight of the sins of all his people was placed upon him. Once he seemed to stagger under it, Father, if it be possible... But again, he stood upright. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The whole of the punishment of his people was distilled into one cup. No mortal lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. When he put it to his own lips, it was so bitter, he well nigh spurned it. Let this cup pass from me. But, for, but his love for his people was so strong that he took the cup in both his hands and at one tremendous draft of love, he drank damnation dry for all of his people. He drank it all. He endured all. He suffered all so that now forever there are no flames of hell for them, no racks of torment. They have no eternal woes. Christ hath suffered all they ought to have suffered, and they must, they shall go free. The work was completely done by himself without a helper. Right? I mean, was there real emotional anguish in the life of Christ? Yes. But Christ was fearless and full of faith. So, yes, he dealt with the pressures, and yes, he grieved and all of that, but he walked the perfect line. And Scripture calls us to follow in his steps, even in the most difficult of circumstances, And as believers, God strengthens us to faithfully do just that. So as Christians, we need to look for the roots of unbelief and discontent. When we see the fruit of guilt, when we see the fruit of fear, we see the fruit of anxiety or or despair or sinful anger, we need to learn to trace back to those roots of unbelief and discontent. And we need to know that emotions should never serve as our master or as an excuse for disobedience. We say this, emotions make great servants, alerting us to desires and beliefs and thoughts gone wrong, energizing us to move out and helping us to take new steps of growth, but emotions make terrible masters, right, if we're living by them and they're not in keeping with the truth of God.
So thoughts are the initiators, emotions are the indicators. And while thoughts of the heart change body chemistry, because they do, and therefore they change feelings, those subjective sort of uh, bodily feelings, no body chemistry generates thoughts. Okay? You with me on this? Okay. No body chemistry generates thoughts. Our thoughts in the heart affect body chemistry, but body chemistry does not generate thoughts. Thoughts always originate from a biblical standpoint in the heart. Okay? That is why God holds us responsible for our thoughts. Thoughts that are addressed by the scriptures, and therefore these are spiritual issues. Okay? And what does God's word say about those thoughts? Well, we've already seen this, that the scriptures teach us that they proceed out of the heart. But think about this. According to 2 Corinthians 10.5, we're to be, as, 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 as followers of Christ, we're to be taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, right? And we also learn that God's word itself is the final judge of our thoughts as it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that should be the focus of our attention, not on how we feel, but on how we are thinking and choosing. Now, let's look a little bit more closely at this issue of fear. Uh, we know that sinful fear is a result of the fall, right? That before that time, Adam experienced no sense of, of you, might, you might call it vulnerability, right? But fear and doubt clearly played a part of that first temptation, and fear was an obvious consequence. Uh, Eve and Adam ate the forbidden fruit, and Genesis 3, 7 says, "...then the eyes of both of them were opened." And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord uh, Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself." So here we have that, you might call it a flight response. Uh, when people are, are gripped with fear, they usually respond by either fleeing, freezing, or fighting. Right. So very, very, very powerful emotion in, in, in the life of people. So powerful that out of fear, many people move from job to job. They move from, from town to town. They move from friend to friend, relationship to relationship. Uh, that because of fear, they'll, they'll do things like lock themselves in their homes. They'll neglect to get physical, uh, physical care and to take care of themselves or take care of their, their families. They'll avoid conversations. They'll hoard their belongings. They'll toss and turn all night and get, get little rest. They'll refuse to get on a plane or get in a car. They may run from life itself, and there's a million other things. Right, Afraid of the future, afraid of failure, afraid of rejection, afraid of death or people or embarrassment or pain, and are in some cases facing God. Afraid of not getting what they want or what they think that they need. 
or afraid of losing what they already have. So that being said, I think it's also important for us to know that not all fears are wrong. Not all fears are wrong. In fact, we are commanded to fear what? Fear God, right? Fear the Lord. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So in that, you have this Hebrew parallelism. So the fear, if you take the first, and first part of that uh, uh, line and the second part, you basically would say this, the fear of the Lord is the knowledge of the Holy One. Or you could state it this way, to know God is to fear Him. Right? So if you don't fear Him, you don't know Him. Right? And if you know Him, you will fear Him. Right? The knowledge of God and fear of God are inseparable. That is to say, a true knowledge of God. We're not talking about just knowing some things about Him, but we're talking about knowing Him and being in relationship with Him. Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. The conclusion. This is a song of. Uh, this is Solomon's conclusion uh, at the end of end of life and all of his experiences. He says the conclusion when all has been heard is this: Fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So we are commanded to have a reverence for God which knows His wrath towards sin. So we understand the wrath of God and, and, and how God thinks about sin, but it's also a reverence that draws us to God because of His great mercy and grace that makes us acceptable to Him through our union with Christ. So it, it's not like we forget about God's holiness and wrath, right? When we're saved, it's that we have to keep all of these things in balance, Right? So there is a true fear, uh, and yet we have a true love for God and a true relationship with Him and a security in Him. So we're commanded to live with a... I, I refer to the fear of God sometimes as, as a controlling sense of God's attributes. In other words, the fear of God really is, is understanding the character and, and the perfections of God, but keeping that always in your mind so that in any given situation, you're applying the appropriate attribute of God to the situation, right? And so that's always in view. That's what it means to, to walk in the fear of the Lord, is to always be thinking about the character of God and how that should be impacting what I'm emoting and what I'm doing and what's going on around me and all of that. It's to be conscious of the fact that His eye is upon us, right? So there's this, uh, there's this you know, Romans says this, there's, there's no fear of God, Right? And he's talking about the unsaved world, right? There's no fear of God before their eyes, right? Well, what does he mean? Well, not only do they not understand God, but they don't live in light of God's presence, right? They don't live their their life thinking about the fact that God is observing them, that God is is, is taking note of of, of the way that they're living their life. So all of these things, controlling sense of God's majesty and holiness and goodness, a consciousness of, of His eye being upon us, all that is the fear of the Lord. Then there's just the normal, we might call it just the normal concern. For instance, the welfare of others, just a concern for people's health and safety, a concern about the things or the people that influence them, a concern about their spiritual condition, right? I mean, we think about those things a lot. And then we have things like caution and prudence, which is said to even be the characteristics of the wise man, 
right? It's a characteristic of the wise man, Proverbs 22.3. The prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive or the simple go on and are punished for it. So, so we have to be aware of what's going on. We have to have a level of concern. We have to see and understand particular threats, right? Threats to us and threats to others. That's not necessarily sinful fear, right? To be mindful of those things or to, be, or to have those concerns. And ca- being cautious and being prudent is not inherently a sinful thing because we're encouraged to be prudent in the book of Proverbs. And yet we are never to elevate planning and prudence above God Himself while at the same time we're still to be exercising prudence. So we're still exercising prudence but it's sort of like Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's not saying don't build a house and don't, watch, don't put up a guard, right? It's saying be prudent, okay? It's okay to lock your doors at night in your home. That's being prudent. Just realize that that is not your ultimate security, right? It's prudent to do certain things, but you've got to make sure that there's this ultimate assurance and ultimate trust in God, Himself, And then we might add to that list of uh, those things that are forms, if you will, of fear that, that, that may not be s- sinful. Um, you could add to that the fear of danger, which when used as a protective device can be a good thing, right? We, sh- we should teach our teens not to give hitchhikers a lift. We should teach our children to not to play close to the street or not to touch the top of a, of a, of a stove, those kinds of things. But as a preoccupation, it is usually becomes a sinful thing, right? It's, it's not, again, that prudence and that cautiousness. It's when we can't stop thinking about it, right? And so when we, it becomes a preoccupation, again, that is, that is an indication that we have stopped trusting the Lord. So we might summarize it this way. Fear is right and good when it moves us toward God and faithful obedience to His Word. But that isn't always the case. And there are fears that are clearly sinful, right? Uh, Where there's this absence of a lack of trust. You have sinful worry, which we'll talk more about as we go along, that, that, that may begin as a normal concern, but then morphs into something that is dividing a person's heart and taking their focus off of Christ. Then there's timidity, or you might say cowardice, so you have Paul telling Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, or some translations say fear, but of power and love and discipline. Uh, you also have panic that is characterized by a lack of self-control. And so, again, fruit of the Spirit, self-control is a, fruit of the, uh, a manifestation of the, of the Spirit in our lives and hearts. When things happen and there's just this sort of immediate panic that goes on, okay, that's... That's not good, right? We need to slow down and and be careful about, again, the way that we're thinking and the way that we're interpreting what's going on around us and in us. And, of course, you have the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says the fear of man brings a snare, right? So this is about being a man pleaser, uh, being more concerned about what others think of you than what God thinks of you. All of these kinds and expressions of fear are wrong and sinful because they flow from a wrong view of God or they reveal the presence of heart idolatry or they impede our obedience to Christ. So, since the fall, fear is helpful and not sinful 
when it serves as a caution to alert us to physical or spiritual danger, or it serves as a catalyst to motivate us to physical or spiritual readiness. But fear is sinful and not helpful when in our unbelief we allow fear to stop us from fulfilling our biblical and God-given responsibilities. When fear causes you to shrink in your commitment, when it is debilitating and prevents service to Christ, when it causes isolation, or when it is used as a tool for manipulating others. And when we are engulfed in sinful fear, the reality is we are fearing something or someone else more than we fear the Lord. Okay, so the fear of the Lord, we're going to see this next time. The fear of the Lord, if you think about it, is an antidote for these sinful forms of fear. Now, at the same time, this last thing here, there's this connection between loving and fearing, because at the same time, we are wanting and loving something or someone else more than we love God. That is to say, there's a, a connection here between these two things, and I'll just give you some examples. If we fear man... At the same time, we love man's praise and approval, right? If we fear adversity or unpleasant circumstances, at the same time, we want a life of ease or comfort with little or no pain. If we fear losing something or someone dear, at the same time, we reveal our love for maybe it's money or health or a particular relationship or thing. If we fear physical harm, at the same time, we desire or long for Safety. And so this is an important connection for us to understand because you could say that our fears reveal our loves. Right? When, you, when you can pinpoint the things that you're fearful of, you can, the same way you can go back to these thoughts, you can use the emotion of fear as a way to trace back to what are the true desires of your heart. What are the things that are important to you? What are your values? What are your priorities? What or who are the things that you love? So again, and we'll, we'll wrap up here. Thoughts are key, right? Sinful fear begins with unbelieving thoughts. People think to themselves, I'm not safe. God isn't doing enough for me to feel safe. God himself is not enough for me to feel safe. I need to do something more, okay? And something more, those kind of thoughts come in a host of flavors, Right? I must have control, I must have more information, I must have a greater level of performance, I must have more possessions and so forth. And discontented thoughts are swirling in our hearts, in our minds. If only I had such and such, or if I knew such and such, or if I could avoid this or could get that, um, I should be this particular way or have this particular thing. I don't like the way things are, the way things are going. So there's a, a sense of uncertainty that leads to a discontent with uncertainty because I don't like not having the certainty that I want, which inevitably leads to efforts being made to achieve certainty by our own control. That is to say, we'll do whatever it takes to get the certainty that we want. Okay? And down we go. Right? With all kinds of obsessions with all kinds of controlling behaviors. And we'll try to take some, do this before we wrap the series up, but take some, what well, we would say, controlling behaviors and tendencies and, and go back and say, okay, if, if, if that's the behavior, if that's the controlling behavior, what was the obsession? 
right? And then we'll go back from obsession to this uncertainty, right? And we'll go back to this issue of, of, of a lust for more, right? A discontent. And then eventually we'll work back to what? Unbelief. Unbelief of what? Unbelief that God is enough. That God is enough for you and that God has done enough for you. But it all started with our thoughts. What we know, what we believe, and how we interpret what's going on in us and around us and to us. Okay? So that's, that's sort of the framework for, I think, how we can sort of begin to think biblically about these things. Uh, next time, we'll come back and we'll actually talk about, because we haven't got to the, but how do you overcome this sinful fear, right? It's like, how do you do that? How do you actually deal with sinful anxiety and worry? Well, again, we're going un- to unearth some, some texts, Luke 12, and we're going to look at 1 Peter 5. But again, I, I think you've got to get this part before you just jump in and go, oh, there's a verse about worry. I'll just memorize that. And if I just memorize that, then the worry thing should take care of itself, right? Or if I just play Christian music, a song about trusting God and not fearing God, that should take care of my fears, right? No, that's, that's, that, that may be help you in the battle. But if you don't understand where this originates and you don't know, learn to, to look at what you're doing in your life, see the consequences and the fallout from your anxious heart and your, your sinful fears, and then be able to go back and realize how this thing sort of, sort of plays out, then you're never going to really get to that issue of the heart and those thoughts. So it's not just about memorizing a scripture, it's, it's about meditating on scripture, right, on the truth. That's different because meditating implies that you're thinking about these things and not just about them sort of, I've got to memorize this word for word. We're talking about meditating on the implications of those things and the applications of those things, right, and then putting the feet on these things and actually living them out and bringing a sense of self-control to our emotion. Okay, so we'll look at that, how to overcome sinful fear. We'll look uh, initially at some common wrong approaches to doing that. I told somebody I had a great time yesterday watching on the Georgia Public Television. Some Ph.D. guy talked, he has uh, the the Healing Mind. It was a two-part CD that you could uh, rent uh, or or buy for 30 bucks. You get two two audio CDs for $30. (laughs) Wow. So how to overcome anxiety. But here, and here's the thing, basically the, I'll give you, you don't, don't buy it. Okay, if you saw that, don't buy it. I'm gonna get, we're going to talk about it here. You won't have to pay the money to get it. Here's the thing. All he really did was give you ways to seize control. He basically the whole time was saying, you can control more than you think you can control. And so if you're anxious and worried about how that person's going to respond to you, here's what you've got to do. You've got to envision in your mind them responding well. So you've got you've to have, have positive thoughts and positive energy going, and you've got to to visualize that that person's going to accept what you're about to say. Well, that's great if they do, right? <laughs> what happens when they don't do that, right? Then go, they go back to step one. You know, I don't know what you do. So we're going to talk about that. Also, there's a Unitarian church on Sandy Plains Road on their sign. They're, they're talking, they're, I don't even know what I'm going to call it, preaching. They're talking this morning at their church. The guy that's giving the message is speaking about peace and fear, and so I'm going to go check this thing out and see what this, this guru has to say. But we're going to come back and talk about common misunderstandings about how to deal with this. And then we're going to talk about a biblical approach to, again, putting the axe to this, this thing in our lives so that we are found faithful and trusting the Lord. All right? Thanks for your time, guys.